coming up on Venture Voice. Microsoft put me out of business. I think it was 99 or 2000 when Internet Explorer decided to build it into Internet Explorer, which was my first experience with disruption. It was a good learning experience, though, because at the time I was also planning for this because I knew they were building something like it. So one day my browser updated itself and started blocking pop-ups. And of course, I was using my own software. And so I had it in there and it was preemptively doing it before my software was. They knew there were third-party tools out there. And so they were able to catch them before the third-party tools. But it makes sense. I mean, if you're Internet Explorer and this is the number one annoyance in the world of people using your product, you're going to solve it for them. Only they didn't charge for it, I did. But it's life. That's how these things work. Welcome to Venture Voice. This is Greg Gallant. I'm really excited to bring you this interview I did with John Oranger, the executive chairman and founder of Shutterstock. This is a really special episode because we were introduced by a longtime listener of this show, friend of mine now, David Fraga. He listened to this show back in 2005 when I first started it. And at the time, David was an investor working at Insight Venture Partners, which later invested in Shutterstock. And after that investment, he became the VP of Corporate Development at Shutterstock. So David was really excited to hear that I was actually in Miami, where I am now and have been since January. He introduced me to John. And this is also actually the first podcast I've recorded in person in over a decade. I went on a big hiatus with this podcast, restarted it last year. And of course, due to the pandemic, couldn't usually do them in person. But luckily, we were able to arrange it safely at John's mansion here on Miami Beach. John's now stepped back from the day-to-day of running Shutterstock. He served as CEO for many, many years, but he still owns 37% of Shutterstock, which is currently valued at over $3 billion as a public company. So he's definitely still got a horse in that race, but he's also really busy growing the Miami startup scene, investing in companies down here, even incubating completely new companies down here. I think you'll get a real kick out of this interview. Enjoy. John, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me. Tell me about how you got into computer programming. It was sometime in elementary school, actually, a long time ago. It was sometime in the 80s. I was in elementary school. We got this Apple IIe, and that's how it all started, programming logo on Apple IIe. Uh, so it's elementary school. How how'd you get enough time with it? I, I had Apple IIe's in elementary school, but I remember we just have the half an hour in a computer class and play games on it. How'd you actually get the time to program on it? Yeah, I remember there was there was one in our classroom, and I figured out that if I didn't go out for recess, I could somehow sneak back in and get an extra hour on it. So that's how I was able to capitalize on some more time on the machine. It wasn't easy. I mean, eventually we got an Apple IIc at home, which is kind of the, the little brother to the, the IIe. And then, and then from there, I uh, spent time learning Pascal. I remember moving on to C. It was just fun. I mean, computers give you a superpower, right? So being able to have that is, uh, is pretty fun. Do you remember what the first, uh, first program you programmed did? If I think back that far, it's probably a logo, the little turtle moving around in circles. 
But shortly after that, it was text-based gaming. It was kind of fun, pretty simple, but you know, kind of got you used to basic logic inside of a computer. From there, I, I started getting more sophisticated with uh, as I got into high school with uh, privacy and security software, actually. How'd you come across privacy and security? That's not not on the radar of most high school or college kids. I had a job in high school as a as a programmer actually for this company called Mega Voice. And it was these uh these voice-based response systems. I learned C in high school by doing that. They were pretty basic, like, you know, the local car dealership wanted, you know, an automated way for someone to call up, type in their license plate number and know whether their car was ready or not. Little things like that we would create. And Obviously, the only way to do it back then was over the phone. So we would have these voice response systems where, you know, depending on what digits you typed in, you'd get a response. Uh, and some of the early customers were local car dealerships. So I learned C that way. As I was headed uh, later high school into college, the internet was starting to become something that was that was real. And I started to just think like, what are the most annoying annoying issues and problems I could solve? That, that's what I was trying to figure out. Because if, if I could do that, people would buy stuff from me. Right. Nice. And when was this that you were in, a, in college and brainstorming that? This was 1993. So kind of before the mania. And I believe you went to uh, Stony Brook, right? I went to Stony Brook, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Huntington, not not too far nice. uh, far from there. Not far at all. So you're there in Stony Brook, and that's like an hour and a half train ride from the city, but pretty, it feels kind of isolated from the city out there. What was kind of driving you or why, you know, why weren't you content just to uh, have a good time out there? I knew I didn't want to get a job. I had a job in high school as a programmer. And I knew I knew I didn't want to just be, I wanted to create something of my own. I wanted to create a business of my own. And I had read up about all our famous idols in the computer world back then. And what they created and what they led the world through is, is amazing. And I wanted to, I wanted to do something big. I wanted to create a business and looking for problems I had or things I wanted to solve for myself or things that were annoying to me on a computer, on a computer. Those were the things that, that I started to focus on. Of your idols, were you more uh, Bill Gates, uh, Steve Jobs, or someone else? I remember reading a lot about Bill Gates, just every single thing I could. Windows was the dominant platform at the time for business. There were some Apple computers out there in the 90s, but if you wanted to build something of scale to get uh, to build revenue, and it wasn't in the design world, you were building for the Windows platform. That's where I focused at the time. Before the second coming of Steve Jobs, right? That's right. You're at college and you're starting to experiment with these businesses. How many businesses did you try while you were in college? In college, it was it was a few. I had an advertising-based business. I was trying to play with a ad-sharing model. That didn't quite work. But I hit on this pop-up blocker. Like Pop-ups were so annoying back in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. I remember 90s. that. This tool simply would kind of get crowdsourced data based on who were the most offensive pop-up creators on the web. And obviously there weren't as many sites as there are today. So we can kind of we could create a database on the back end of, of the really annoying things. So we would we would basically wait for people to report from their browser, which at the time was um Internet Explorer, that there was a bad actor popping up a window. And we would collect all that data. And if we got enough votes for a specific site and a specific URL, we would basically make it so that URL would not appear on your desktop. It could not open its own window. I mean, it was probably one of the first internet crowdsourced applications out there where we were taking data from lots of different people in order to create a central database to sell a subscription product. And it was called Pop-Up Eliminator. And the brand was called Surf Secret. 
When you say uh, we, who is the we at this point in Pop-Up Eliminator? It was me and uh, and an employed engineer from Holmdale, New Jersey. So it was two of us. How'd you find the uh, engineer? Oh, I don't remember right now, but I remember it wasn't easy. I mean, at the time it was Visual Basic and Visual C. That's what we created these things in. I probably asked around. I probably used bulletin board systems or IRC chats or some of the old school kind of tools that were out there before, you know, the modern tools we know of today, like Slack and uh, and LinkedIn. Now, of course, you would probably spin that up on AWS for minimal money, but this was, of course, long before cloud computing. Like, what did you have to do to actually get an internet service to work then? We had a few servers at Rackspace that would collect the backend data, process the e-commerce transactions, serve the website, et cetera. On the front end, it was a visual basic and visual C application. I would communicate with the back end, and that's the application you would buy. And it was free to try. And then if you want to use it past 30 days, you have to buy a subscription for it. What was the timeline between when you started building it and when the first person passed 30 days and you got the cash? Oh, yeah. I uh, I remember little bits of this, but um, it was incredibly satisfying because I would get an email each time. And I remember setting up a ka sound to resonate that's through my awesome. entire apartment, well, initially my dorm room which annoyed everybody in the, the dorm. I remember it happening pretty fast. I mean, this was one of, if you think back to 1996, I mean, this is like one of the most annoying things you could, like it was just pop-ups were, they would create a lot of problems if you're trying to use the internet for a, for a productive purpose. So I felt like at the time I hit on something, something good. How did it ramp? Like how, you know, how much revenue did you make in the first month, if you can remember, and kind of throughout the life cycle of uh, the pop-up blocker? Yeah, I mean, it, it ramped up. There was marketing behind it, just like there is today, uh, except the advertising world back then was a little harder to, to navigate. You would basically contact individual sites to buy advertising. and That's what I did one by one. Basically, it was a, it was a slow ramp. I remember uh, getting to $1,000 a day of revenue, which was pretty cool. Wow. How many kachings was that? <laughs> it was a lot. I think by then I had to turn off the kachings. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good problem to but have. It was, it was, I was starting to learn... My e-commerce chops were starting to begin uh, to form because it was a subscription product. If you stopped paying, you wouldn't get the data on the newest offending sites. So if you stopped paying, you still had the application installed. There was no way to pull it back, but you stopped getting the updates. My job at the time was try to solve an annoying problem and create a recurring revenue stream. As you've been going after the SaaS business model since uh, <laughs> since the nineties, yeah, yeah. I mean, no one knew it was a SaaS business model back then, but it looks quite similar. How long did you run the pop-up blocker for? Oh, many years until 19, I think it was 99 or 2000 when Internet Explorer decided to build it into Internet Explorer. And Microsoft uh, basically put me out of business, which was my first uh, experience with disruption. Yeah. Well, cruel irony that Bill Gates was your childhood (laughs) hero and that his company puts you out of business. Yeah. It was a good learning experience though, because at the time I was also planning for this because I knew they were were building something like it. So- I was starting to build out the surf secret privacy suite, which was personal firewall and privacy protector and cookies were really annoying. So understanding who was dropping these things on your computer was was important as well. So deleting offending cookies and not letting sites that were tracking you that you didn't want to track before there were rules on the internet, you needed uh, some help with this stuff. So this application did that for you. So there were a couple more applications that I continued to sell after that. Tell me like at the height before Internet Explorer put you out of business, how much about how much money was it making a year? Was it a hundred thousand, a million? Uh, it was a million dollars a year of revenue, and it had 
very little expenses. What was your life like at the time, making a million dollars in revenue? And this is like while you were in college and then, or and soon after? This was soon after. Yeah, I was in New York. I bought an apartment in uh, in Gramercy Park area. And good investment, I'm sure. Yeah, it was a good investment. <laughs> yeah. This was when, so part of the, just to bridge this to the future, part of what I needed to do was I was, I was basically limited by marketing, right? Like I had the software, I had the programmer that can continue to develop updates. I had the backend infrastructure that was that was getting updated. So there was continuous value added every single day. But my limiting factor was the marketing. There was no place to buy images. So I started taking them myself. This was the start of Shutterstock, actually. So right now we're in 1999. Shutterstock was 2003. But I didn't really even realize that at the time. But I was starting to build a library of marketing imagery. Oh, from taking it for the privacy uh, software? It, yeah. Yeah, because there, there were a couple stock agencies at the time, but they weren't designed for the internet. They were still quoted in print runs, and it was just really old school stuff. So I was shooting my own images. and Even at a million in revenue, you didn't want to go hire a photographer? I was starting to edit images, take images, do, create animated GIFs. Things that would stand out as banner ads. Yeah. A lot of people don't know GIFs go back to the 90s. I remember building my first websites with those. Yeah. If you had that skill set back then, you were able to stand out quite a bit. That's cool. Now, now before I jump into the kind of how that evolution happened, what was the moment where you found out that Internet Explorer did build it in and would put you out of business? It was a great learning experience. I mean, I look back and I was I was thinking this is probably the end of the world for me. Do you remember like where you were when you found out or like what setting you were in or, or just how you read about it? I think what happened was I sort of knew they were working on it, but one day my my browser updated itself and started blocking pop-ups. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and of course, I was using my own software and so I had it in there and it was preemptively doing it before my software was. They knew They knew there were third-party tools out there. And so they were able to catch them before the third-party tools. But it makes sense. I mean, if you're Internet Explorer and this is the number one annoyance in the world of people using your product, you're going to solve it for them. Only they didn't charge for it, I did. But (laughs) it's life. That's how these things work. Yeah, I'm sure there's the delta though between like intellectually knowing you're going to get disrupted and then actually seeing it because they could have taken another year or two to get around to that, right? Yeah, I mean, and what I started to realize was, was I had built something that wasn't that easy to replicate. So Internet Explorer actually took a while to catch up. And so I adapted the software to work coinciding with the built-in pop-up blocker. So I continued to have revenue. I mean, it became a depreciating asset from there, but it continued to uh, have a long tail of actual revenue that I was able to. Just takes a while for people to click cancel. Yeah, they had to cancel. Like all those people with AOL accounts who forgot to shut, you know, took years to shut them off after they got their cable modem. Exactly. It took a while. But there was some value that was still added because I had all this data on many years of of bad offending sites, which Microsoft was taking a different approach on how they were blocking them. So it was actually a tool that I was able to build in a way where for a couple more years, I was actually able to get new subscriptions because it kind of worked with the integrated pop-up blocker. But by year 2001, it was done. What was your life like at that time? Were you Did you hire a team around you? Were you spending the million living an awesome New York City lifestyle or just stock, you know, socking it away in the bank? I was storing it away. I mean, eventually it became a lot of the investment capital for Shutterstock since Shutterstock was bootstrapped and I was able to, uh, to build that pretty efficiently as well. But it was kind of nice. I, I mean, I, my friends were wondering why they had to work at banks and why I was working out of my house. But 
it was the really, really early Wild West days of the internet. So starting early made a big difference. But yeah, it was great. It was great to be doing that as my first few years living in New York City post-college. Why did you decide to kind of keep running it so lean versus uh, building up a, a team and getting an office and especially back then doing all the things people expected of companies? Yeah. I mean, back then I, I did some math on the addressable market and I started to realize I could have started to really, there wasn't as much venture capital in New York for one thing. Venture capital was harder to get back then. And honestly, I just, I looked at it as a lifestyle business. It wasn't going to be the, the big, big, big business. I mean, shareware was interesting. Freeware was interesting at the time. There were a couple of competitors that were really well-funded and they got really big. Uh, and I just looked at it and I said, I can get 10%, 20% EBITDA margins on 5 or $10 million of revenue if I can 5 or 10x this, or I could just keep it the same as what it is right now. And that would be... So I had this EBITDA mindset from the beginning. I had this profitability mindset from the beginning. And I was thinking, why am I going to kill that? When you were kind of starting off your, uh, your entrepreneurial career, was your ambition to build out a huge company or were you more of the mindset like, hey, if I can just find a portfolio of stuff and make a couple million a year... I'm happy. So I was thinking there would be a bunch of these things. And I was thinking they would, I would eventually find CEOs for them and I would kind of build them out. And I was kind of building this portfolio approach back then. It kind of didn't work out that way. I mean, there were a few things I tried. I tried creating a dating website. I tried creating um, a legal services firm. All of these things kind of fizzled out a bit. But at the same time, Shutterstock started to really grow, which was the, uh, where I was putting all my photos on a on a website and saying for you know five to ten bucks a month, I forget it was like eight dollars a month, something like that. You can have whatever you want. So you were doing all, all these different. How many different things were you trying simultaneously? Uh, it was about off ten. Ah. yeah. So there was Surf Secret. There was the dating website. There was the legal services firm. There were a few others that never really got off the ground. And were you putting uh, like equal effort into them all, or did you put more effort at, right at the beginning into Shutterstock, or you know yeah. what do you what do you attribute the success of one and the the failure of the rest? Well, Surf Secret was the one I was spending the most time on. Shutterstock was the thing on the side, and then out of nowhere, Shutterstock started to show some traction with my really. I just had a bunch of bad photos on a website that were basically what I started to realize was having legally cleared, global, royalty free photos available. They were really hard to find, right? I was solving my problem. I didn't realize it was a business. I put it, I just decided to go test it. Turned out I tested really well. And it was literally all your, just only your photos. In the beginning, it was only my That photos. you took running around New York City with your own SLR and. Exactly. Yeah. It was New York and it was the world because I was, I was able to work from anywhere. So I was traveling when I was building Surf Secret. I would code from anywhere on the planet. Where were some of the places? I remember Costa Rica. I remember going to Europe. And just, you know, spending months there. And I was just, I was working on these companies from there. So basically I had I had every night I would take all the pictures I created that day, upload them to Shutterstock, and I would improve some of the code on on Surf Secret. Surf Secret was paying for my lifestyle and Shutterstock was this thing where I was just like testing and people were buying they started buying the images. And it was just one off, like you want this image. How, how much were you no, charging? It was a subscription. So from the beginning it was a subscription and I was charging about $7 a month for all you can eat, which was, I always got, you know, these emails like, what's the catch? Because nothing had existed at that. I, people were still shooting their own, they would hire studios to shoot their own stuff, or they would use one of, they would use Getty or Corbis. But back then, these were not, they were not efficient models to buy images with. They were really just like stuck in time kind of catalog. 
services. And you mean you'd have to buy the image one at a time, $100 for the, to license this one? Yeah, and it was only for a certain part one. of the world. Like It didn't make any sense. It was a really bad model at the time. So, so I figured I would improve on that model. That became Shutterstock. And then why a uh, subscription? It seems kind of counterintuitive. Like, hey, I just want, like, I would think a lot of people at the time were thinking like, hey, I can just sign up for one month, buy all the photos, and then cancel my subscription and have it on my website. If you go back to the Surf Secret story, so Pop-Up Eliminator was basically a back-end data service that would keep improving, right, with a front-end user interface that would use that data and would keep getting smarter based on the data of the, the world that was contributing to it. So Shutterstock is essentially the same as the pop-up blocker in a way. It's a two-sided marketplace, kind of. You have people that are contributing data. You have people that are benefiting from data. You have people that are contributing content. You have people that are benefiting from content. And the two sides of that marketplace, if you have more data, if you have more content, you improve the customer experience, you get more customers. And that's what happened on Pop-Up Eliminator, and that's eventually what happened on Shutterstock. I knew the only way to do this was if I made it a subscription service. When did it convert from like you putting up the site? Did it initially have a subscription or you put up the site and then you realized you could add the subscription? It started with a subscription because I wasn't going to price out my photos individually. They actually weren't that good. I mean, I was seeding a library at the time of with really bad. I was not a good photographer. <laughs> it's ironic because if you were a great photographer, you might have tried to charge more I, per yeah, photo and then yeah. it wouldn't have worked, right? Instead, I was like, give me $8 a month. You can, you can download the whole catalog. I don't, I don't really care. Eventually, as we started to bring on other photographers, things changed. But in the beginning, with, when it was just my images, it was I was fine just with a fixed fee per month. So what was the moment when, when you decided to abandon the portfolio model, or I guess today people would call it a studio model, but uh, you know, abandon that idea of like, I'm going to launch a bunch of sites and find CEOs for them to like, I'm, this is going to be my baby. I'm going to be the CEO of Shutterstock. Well, Shutterstock grew really fast. So I remember we were tripling month over month in those early days. In 2003, 2004, 2005, there were big, big growth years. I couldn't deal with the entire portfolio. And I looked at this and I said, this could be an amazing company. And so I just, I became CEO. I took this, I had the CEO role. I just, I took it and I started hiring people to help me. Started with customer service people and then photo reviewers, then more engineers. And I kept growing from there. Who is the very first hire? I think it was Dan McCormick who's out there building a company called Constructor right now. Cool. How'd you find him? He was a friend and he eventually became CTO of the business. Ah. And so how, uh, like in that first year, like how, how quickly did the hiring happen? Was it like one, two and, and kind of a very slow build or was it kind of rapid fire hiring? It was, you know, six or seven people the first year and then you know, 15 the second, then 30 the next year, 60 the next. By 2007, we were... We were 60 people or so. Did you ever have to hire ahead of your revenue or were you always able to pay for people purely off the, uh, the you know, reoccurring subscriptions you knew you'd have? Sure, Socks, always, we've always had a pretty smart marketing strategy. We, we uh, were able to spend a lot of money and get a really good return on it. So we did. And even up until today, we, we continue that, that strategy. There's a good return on our, on our marketing spend. So, I mean, I remember... We started with um, with Overture back when that was Yahoo buying pay per click advertising before Google had their pay per click model, which became AdWords shortly after that. But we were probably one of the first customers on Google AdWords, actually. 
Wow, so got to got to see the original internet, uh, Boone. Yeah, were you doing the ad buying, or did you ha- hire an agency or bring someone in? Originally, I did the ad ad buying. I mean, there were very few people on the planet that that understood this stuff. I didn't know who to hire. I, I had to do it. It was so simple back then. I mean, it wasn't quite the same auction model. It was it was definitely pay per click, and it was definitely it was very transparent where you were going to be for those clicks. I mean, before that, it was there was a lot of SEO involved. It was all SEO, but SEM became a big part of Shutterstock pretty much after 2004. So how much were you spending? And do you remember in those couple those first early years, 2004, 2005? Well, I was looking at the spend. And I remember I was thinking, okay, well, and this is super early. I mean, this is when AdWords launched. I was acquiring customers for like 50 cents a piece. I knew their lifetime value was in the hundreds. So obviously that doesn't ex- that arbitrage doesn't exist anymore today, but Back then it did. And so I plowed as much money into marketing as I could without running up the auction too high or what the auction, the the mechanism that that was back then. And I mean, it was me and only a couple other people bidding on some of these words. Uh, Different, different era. Basically, yeah, there were three people and and you were paying to be either one, two or three. (laughs) I think I realized early on, like this was going to be the way to really accelerate the business through that growth marketing mechanism. And so we spent a lot of money. We we always had good EBITDA margins because that's kind of where my my head always was. Um, I mean, today it's pretty customary to spend much more than you make to generate customers. Back then, I was spending about I made sure I had forty you percent know, EBITDA margins. Wow! In those, in those first years, uh, so Shutterstock was profitable from the beginning and also bootstrapped and very efficient. Did you own a hundred percent, or did you have any angels at the beginning? There were no angel investors. I had a few employees, so. I had 90% in the beginning and I still own 37% today. So over time, sold down. Pretty good. A lot of people don't own that by their series A or B uh, nowadays. Yeah. I mean, it was obviously a different time, but also I could have built it in a way where, you know, I spent more money than I made for those first few years. I don't know. Maybe today it would be a hundred billion dollar company, <laughs> to do that, but it's hard to know. But I just, I took a conservative growth strategy, conservative in some ways, but aggressive in others. It was a very calculated risk, I like to say. You weren't thinking like, oh man, maybe some venture-backed startup's going to come along and just blow me out of the water by- There were plenty of them. And it turned out the Scorcher strategy was probably not the way to go because Shutterstock's now the biggest out of out of all those that started in that cohort. So why do you think that is? Like intellectually, you, you'd think that just, hey, if there's some company, more money, more employees can outspend on marketing, can out hire, uh, they should be able to hit beat in you. I think we were just- kept our eye on the ball. I mean, even today, we're, we have a really strong team. We have a really smart team. And it's about keeping your eye on the ball. I mean, if you look away even for a day, it's not good. I think we learned that fast early on. And we just stayed smart. So walk me through your, your personal transition, because it seems like hard to beat the life you had before, just making a million bucks a year, going to any city you want and coding, not having to worry about your time zone. How did your life start to change when you realized like, oh, we got to hire a bunch of people and it's pre Zoom. So, uh, you know, when, when did you have to get an office? And just what, what was it like having this responsibility as a manager and leader to other people as opposed to just a solopreneur? Yeah. So suddenly I had a good problem. I had a job, <laughs> <laughs> which I was trying to avoid my whole life, but I had one now. And so we got an office. We got um, an office in Chelsea that can hold 50 people. That was the first. Uh, well, actually, before that, we had an office with 10 people in it, but then we got we got serious and got the one that uh, 
you know, actually we could actually show people and they'd want to work there. And so it was in Chelsea. It was a nice office. It could hold about 50 people and we, we filled it really fast. I liked the new job, but also I, I wanted to run the company the way I wanted to run it, which was the same way I was running it before. Um, but at the time, there wasn't really a way to do a distributed workforce. So I was in an office every day and we were all in the office every single day. And we were all just every single day trying to figure out how do we build this thing bigger. And again, just tried to surround myself with the smartest people I could find, people that are much smarter than I am. And we did it. And then we wound up in a bigger office around down on Wall Street. And then eventually we wound up in an even bigger office in the Empire State Building. And yeah, it's uh, today it's a thousand person company. But I ran it up until it was about seven or 800 people and then gave the CEO reins to somebody else. When was the first time that you felt, you know, as, as you're growing out, because you obviously by this point knew the internet really well, you were kind of on the internet, it sounds like as long as you could have been an internet entrepreneur. But I imagine it must have been new to you, just this idea of managing a bunch of people and corporate org structures and who reports to who and when do you fire somebody? Like, do you remember, um, what was the first moment that you had where you're like, you know, this is really tricky or, or did it come naturally to you? It was tricky. I mean, I was an engineer. The management did not come naturally, but I learned as much as I could. And I'm definitely a better engineer than I am a manager, but I figured out some things and made a lot of mistakes and built the company uh, the best I could. And all throughout, you know, every single week, just meeting with the team and saying, we have to win. Like, we're all here to win. If you don't want to win, don't be, don't come. You don't have to be here. You don't have to work here. You know, winning to us meant being the leader in the space, growing as fast as we possibly could, being as profitable as we could, and, and continue to expand into new markets and build new products and, and wow our customers. And it's a grind being an entrepreneur. And that's what we did every single week every single day. What resources did you use? Did you kind of just learn it all by first principle and trial and error? Were you reading books, bring, having mentors, uh, coaches? I haven't really had any mentors or coaches. I mean, I've asked people you know, who have been in situations before me how they would handle certain things, but mostly I just figured things out myself. I just wanted to do them my way. I realize that's not the most efficient way to do this, but it was the only way I could work. And so a lot of trial and error. A lot of trial and error, a lot of error. Do you remember some of the biggest errors or some of the things I you mean, tried that made sense to you at the time, but then you're like, oh, that doesn't actually work? Uh, with them. None of them are fatal, but you know, I, I can tell you that whatever decisions I made, I was trying to make the best decisions for the company and for my employees and for my customers and for the stakeholders every time. And these things are complicated. You know, when when one of your competitors gets acquired by a really big company, suddenly things, you know, you have to rearrange your strategy or you know, you lose a customer or, or something doesn't go right. You need to, you need to buckle down and figure out how to make sure next time it doesn't work. And business can be brutal. I operated that business the best I could and didn't always make friends along the way, but that's how it is. I don't think I'd go back and change anything. And tell me about the competitor environment. So I guess Getty must have been the kind of 500 pound gorilla. Yeah. Getty was the incumbent. We still look at them as the incumbent and we're approaching their size, uh, very, very, very quickly. So. I mean, Shutterstock's been growing for a long time and we're the leader. We have a, we're not a media company. We're a technology company that sells media. Um, and we're able to compete in every way against our, our competitors, you know, but I started from nothing. I started from a few really bad photos in 2003 and went up against a huge company. And I'm proud that, that we were able to build something 
as big and and uh, hopefully bigger in the future. I should have looked this up beforehand, but if I remember right from years ago, was Bill Gates an investor in uh, Getty or Corbis? Bill Gates uh, was an investor in Corbis. And so when I started, Corbis and Getty were the two competitors. So you just can't stop competing with Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So yeah. you did better the second time. Pop-up blockers, and then I had to step up my game, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happened at Corbis? Uh, eventually, it, I think it got sold off in parts. I'm not sure where everything is today, but but yeah, I mean, they were they were a great company back then. and. I don't know where the brand is today. But. Yeah, so, so tell me, uh, and it's interesting for me to hear because my my business we're, we're a similar dynamic with Muckrack being kind of the the David to these Goliaths that have been around for a lot longer than us. Uh, how much did that you know did Getty and, and thinking about competing with them? Like, how do you kind of manage like your mind share between thinking about a strategy that you know would help you win against competitors versus just focusing on the customer? That kind of tension of you know, focusing on the customer versus focusing on the competitors. Well, I think there's motivation both ways, and there's still motivation today uh, both ways. So, I mean, I am motivated to always create something better for my customer, always. And I'm always asking them what they need. I'm always looking on social networks to see what they're saying, and I'm always trying to create a better experience for them. But also, it's it's fun to compete with big companies. I like competing with big companies. And, you know, when I started, people were like, oh, yeah, there's these big companies out there. You'll never be able to compete with them. Well. Here we are today, and we're competing with them very well. In fact, um, we're just as big as they are. So, you know, it's 20 years later. It takes time, but none of these things are impossible. It makes you think about, you know, who's competing with you today and who's going to be the disruptor for what you're creating today. I think they're, they're incredible motivating forces, both creating amazing things for your customer and two, when there are these, these big companies out there trying to figure out exactly how to, how to build something bigger than what they have. Looking back, was there is there like one or two or three things you can point to that you think really gave you the edge over the uh the the incumbents that you started out competing against? Yeah, I think it was so the subscription model from the beginning was really important. And 20 years of that was important. It took a long time for our competitors to figure out that that was that was something that was really important. And building the network effect inside of that subscription, the user interface the mechanics of how contributors get paid and what they see and and buyers and what they do and collecting the right data, that entire thing, there's just tons of tiny details. If you don't get right, you will not figure out how this world works. And those were really important for us. And I think early on, just making sure I was connected to every single part of the customer experience, I still use the site as a customer today. I still download Shutterstock images just to see what it's like. You know, I try to be a customer. So you know, we're building a website down here for Miami for our incubator and we use Shutterstock assets. And you know, even going through that, there are a couple of little things I find that I send to the product team. And these are, you know, constantly improving this stuff and acting like a customer is the way to do it. And that's what I did from Shut- with Shutterstock from the beginning. And I think we created a better customer experience than any of our competitors have. And even today, we're light years ahead of them when it comes to our customer experience. And that's why we have subscriptions, I think, that subscribers that hold on for a long time. How do you handle that logistically now? Like you see something wrong with the user experience. I think about this myself, Bryce, on our side, like, oh, do I just post it to the product Slack channel or they get a freak out that the CEO is posting it? Like, like, do you send it directly to the product manager? Do you route it through the VP product? You just post it on Slack. You're like, why are we screwing this up? Today, I send it to the C-level team. Earlier on, I used to just send it Slack straight to the entire engineering and product team and just 
be like, this has to get fixed. Like, what's going on here? This is embarrassing. This cannot be our user experience. I think, look, I, again, like I said earlier, like I, I don't always make friends, but I'm always honest. And I think once the company gets really, really big, you can, that starts to become really disruptive and you start to need to use channels. And we have a mechanism today to deal with some of these things in a better way. People have also changed, by the way, in the past 20 years about how they work and what they're sensitive to. But for many years, I would just blast it right out and just be like, this has to get And you just blow up. You're like, I don't care what the roadmap is. Like, this is embarrassing. Well, it's, Let's fix it now. I definitely care about the roadmap. I definitely care about, I definitely don't want anybody to be distracted. But sometimes we have to take a step back and say, if we're pushing this experience to our customers, then we have to ask ourselves why we're doing it. And you know, these are sometimes they're small things. I mean, it could be the way a shadow looks on a button or the way that you know, a sentence reads to in a certain language to someone or or how the you know the mobile experience compares with the desktop experience. But these are real problems. These are real things. And you know, without that kind of attention to detail and focus on delivering a perfect user experience, that's what got us to where we are today. We can't lose that. So it's important. And sometimes they hear from me and sometimes I'll quietly get it on the roadmap to fix. <laughs> <laughs> Still have the uh the influence there. Yeah. I mean, today it's, hey, look, we have an amazing team. Our product team is is getting better and better by the day. And today they're finding the problems for I am, which is good. And that's been happening for many years now. But if I notice something, I'm not shy about it. Was there a turning point? Do you feel like you really had to change your management style at some scale that stuck out? Or did it just feel very fluid with the growth? No, I definitely had to change it. Yeah, I had to change it over time. I used to just be really honest and kind of blast my thoughts out. and. Today, it's hard to do that. I mean, things can be read differently. Things can be read wrong. Things can be blasted out in public ways that could be read out of context. And obviously, everyone has to be more careful today. But I haven't stopped being completely honest about how our work is. And for every company I'm involved in, if I see a problem, the company will know. I mean, I'm not going to let it go. So it's just how I work. Can't be apologetic about that. That's how Shutterstock got to where it is. I mean, it's it's that crazy attention to detail. I mean, and if I'm going to you know, stay up till two o'clock in the morning, making sure every single corner of the product looks right, then they're going to hear that if I see something wrong. Again, no matter what the company is that I'm working with, which today is, it's a lot. I invest a lot. I, I build a lot. Tell me about the uh, kind of the financial journey of the company. I know in, um, I believe in 2007, you did your first outside investment and then eventually went to IPO. What led your thinking around there? And then you were in a unique spot. You could do whatever you wanted. And you know, there are companies like Basecamp that, I guess they took the money from Bezos. But aside from that, they've been adamantly staying private. But you chose to uh, to do uh, growth equity and then eventually go public. What, what was your thinking behind it? Yeah. So we actually didn't take growth. So we did a, a round with Insight that was all secondary. Basically, I did that because I wanted to take some risk off the risk off the table so that I can think even bigger and create a billion dollar company. By secondary, they, they just gave you the cash for your equity. Yeah, that's right. So in it was 2007 or so. And so we did a secondary. The first primary dollars hit the balance sheet from the outside world was the IPO. Ah. That was in 2012. But in 2007, I decided, look, if I was going to really create something big here, I wanted to de-risk a little bit. And that's when I sold uh, about 25% of the company just to take a little bit off the table, then go big from there. Was there any pressure from them to also take some primary? Did they say to you, hey, look, why don't we just let us put another few tens of millions in the company and, uh, and at, let you grow at the, faster? At the time, no. But today, that, that definitely would have happened. 
back then it was, I mean, Insight wrote the check and it was around their investment size and they were the only investor and it was fine. How big was the uh, the check? Uh, it was around 50 or so. How did it change your life? I guess you had you had some money already just from being CEO and your, your pop-up blocker, <laughs> which probably earned some interest by then, but what what is getting that cash change for you? And did you upgrade your lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, that that it was life-changing. And I mean, the most important life-changing part of that was that I can think bigger about Shutterstock. But it also allowed me to buy a bigger apartment and kind of get a little more comfortable in New York and and think about different ways to... I made some investments, things like that. So it definitely allowed me to diversify a bit. That was good. But again, like I said, the most important part of that was that I was able to think bigger about Shutterstock. And that was when we really press on the gas. I hired a COO. I, we started to prepare public financials. We started to practice quarterly calls. We started to, uh, we spent a lot more on marketing. We started to really increase the, the pace and growth of the business. If I was still all in, that would have been hard to do, I think. So it was good. I took a little bit off the table. And also Insight helped me to build the company. Jeff Lieberman and Jeff Horing over there were are great. And they, they helped me with that. Then we just built the company. It was just all in, just build the thing, go public. And we went public in 2012. We're still growing 40% year over year. We continue that for a while. Walk me through what what's it like IPO and going public and, and going from like that's just that mode of it all being your baby to public and anyone can uh, buy a share. It was exciting. It was fun. Today, there's a lot of good parts about being a public company. There's a lot of annoying parts of being a public company. I think you know anyone on the planet can. Uh, who's public will will say that or they're lying. There's a lot more process to everything. But it's fine because it gives you ultimate flexibility. I mean, there are employees that just want to work at public companies and we want those employees. There are employees that that get equity that can hold on to that in a really tax efficient way. And that's a great thing. And so we encourage this kind of uh, thing. And, and I think it's great being out there and being public. What kind of prep did you have to do? Uh, we had to get you know the, the usual audited financials. Um, build out some IR, practice the calls. How do you practice the calls? You start reporting publicly to yourself a few quarters before you actually go out and do it. Do you actually have someone call in and pretend to be an analyst and, and grill you? Yeah, we had an IR consultant that basically would look at our script, prove it, help us improve, improve it. And then we would literally read it as if it was a, were a call and she would ask the questions as if she was an analyst. and. It got us got us ready to go. Then I just listened to a lot of them. I mean, it's not rocket science and there's kind of a pattern to it. And then then you do it, but you want to be ready for that. Do you think that that process, that rigor of, uh, of doing the calls and being public, do you think it actually makes you better or it's a necessary evil to being a public company? I think it makes you better. You know, as a private company, you can let a lot of things slip. You can, you know, there's different ways that you can report to your investors as a private company that you can when you're public. I think the consistency made us better. The focus on the quarter can be annoying, but it also makes you better in the long run. I mean, it can make you think a little bit short term, but if you catch yourself, you can get out of that. I think there are lots of pros that outweigh the cons. Nice. And kind of going through that, how many uh, how many public quarters did you go through before you decided to uh, to step down? Uh, I guess that was just a little over a year ago, right? Right before the pandemic. Yeah. So it was eight years and. So it was about 32 quarters. Ah. What was the split of your day like? Like how much time was spent 
just dealing with being a public company versus uh, you know finding those those product issues late at night versus oh, it's hiring product people. stuff. I know I'm a product person. I'm not a career public CEO, so my role is was going to be different as public company CEO. I'll probably never be a public company CEO again. I set it up so that it was like two or three weeks a quarter. There were you know half my time was spent on the public company stuff. Besides that. The rest was just focused on the company and the product. And I, I like to think my investors like that that was the case as well. How did you set up your team so that you could focus on the product and you didn't just get bogged down by HR issues, sales issues, marketing issues, just the, the usual mix of stuff that can bubble up to a CEO? Yeah, I mean, that some of that stuff's unavoidable and I did deal with it. But you just keep strengthening your C-level team. Then you can continue to focus on the things you're good at. And it's about constantly improving that team. That's it. And constantly getting them to step up. How do you do that? Like, as you keep having to hire people to run departments that you increasingly know little about because the company's getting, or not little about, but in other words, like at scales you've never been at before. How do you know that someone's going to be a good executive and that they're going to know this, this functional area that, that you're, where you're looking to learn from them? It was hard for me because I had never worked at another company before. So I didn't really know. What I did uh, eventually do is hire a COO who helped me, and most of the people reported to that person. And that helped me kind of continuously think about the business and how to continue to innovate the business. I mean, people obviously do this in all sorts of ways, but that was the way it worked for me. Nice. What what scale did you bring the COO in at? Uh, It was 2010, so 100 million of revenue or so, 80 million of revenue. How do you know the person was the right person? You never do. <laughs> I mean, you gotta you gotta bring them in and see how see how they do. There's some randomness to it, but we've gotten it right a few times now. So was it hard just to tell everybody like, "Hey guys, here's this new person. You all report to him. Leave me alone." It wasn't because they, I mean, people knew I was I was more product and and marketing than I than I was HR or legal or or operations, right? So. It kind of made sense. It made sense to people. Tell me about what, what happened where you decided to uh, to move on to the chairman road, role and bring in a, replace yourself as CEO. Well, I mean, eventually it was 18 years as CEO. So it was a few years before I was able to make the transition that I started to think about the succession and bringing in the right COO was, was the key. And bringing Stan in was clearly the key. Uh, once I found the right COO that I could hand the CEO title to, it became really clear really fast. That took a few years of work, bringing you know, bringing in different people and trying to get to the right right person. But look, they they have to be able to operate a company at the size. They have to continue to grow the core. They have to make M and A decisions. They have to make smart management decisions. They have to build strong teams. They have to, and you're constantly evaluating them on all of this. So bringing them in as COO is the way to go. So you bring them in as C- COO, and then if they work out, you make them CEO versus yeah. having a rotating CEOs. Exactly, and that's the way. We did it. So you uh, you stepped down. How much did you know what you wanted to do once you became chairman with the rest of your time, or did you figure like let me let me step down and then I'll then I'll figure out what I do with the rest of my time? I was pretty sure that I wanted to spend half my time on Shutterstock, owning close to forty percent. Still makes sense for me to do that, and then I wanted to spend the other half of my time building businesses. And then the question was, where am I going to build them? And then that's why we eventually decided to move down here to Miami. But I wanted to build an incubator. I like cities that are emerging. When I started Shutterstock, New York City was emerging as a tech city. Uh, in 2003, it was not obviously a tech city. 
And I like the fact that Miami is not obviously a place you start a company, but it's a very viable place to start a company if you're in tech. And I think uh, we're going to together make this uh, a very obvious place to start a company and build build the scene here. Yeah, it's exciting now. And it's just amazing how much it's bubbled up. Uh, you know, it seems like every week. And of course, we're here in Miami now, but it's not that it was all that long ago. But tell me when you're making the decision, how many signs were there that Miami would be a tech hub? Because it's, it's been changing by the month. Miami has a lot of great things going for it. It's a really international city. It's a very livable city. And there are universities here and there are uh, there's a lot of diversity here as well. And so we need to move from Miami being a net exporter of talent to being an entrepreneurial city. That means, you know, instead of us filling all the big Silicon Valley diversity numbers, let's start building some stuff down here. If the environment exists, which it looks like it does now, if we have plenty of VC down here, we have lots of entrepreneurs down here, we have people moving down every day, we can get some big companies down here to emerge. I said, tell me, what's your setup now? Are you, are you going to create a fund with other people's money? Are you just investing your own money? How much are you going to professionalize it? Or are you just kind of acting as a, a solo angel? I'm using my own money. So I'm working with this, this guy, Ed Lando, on investing and incubating some businesses. I think we work well together. I met him about uh, two years ago or a year and a half ago or something around then. And uh, he's moved down to Miami as well. Together, we were starting some companies and we're making lots of investments. We have our first Miami entrepreneur. From, he's in Aventura. We've gotten him going on an idea. It's not always the first idea that works. Probably going to be a pivot. And that's why we're not saying what that idea is yet. But I like the fact that we have some of our first hires here in Miami that are Miami local. We hired our chief of staff from here, Nadav. I met Nadav on the, uh, several times on the cycling, uh, Miami yeah. Tech Cycling. Yeah, he's great. He's on, he cycles with all of us. It's kind of funny how Miami Tech and Miami Cycling are uh, so intertwined. It's a new golf. It is the new golf. That's right. It's a great sport. It's been great down here and I, and we love living down here and I'm looking forward to building more down here. What's your thought on, on you know, future companies? Does it even matter where they are? Does it make sense to even be thinking like, let me invest in Miami versus like, hey, this company's going to be distributed. It's in the cloud. Like, like to what degree do you... Do you think location matters, period, for a company nowadays? I think in some ways it does. And and once we come back from this kind of dispersed pandemic environment, I think we're not all going back to offices every single day. There'll be some hoteling. A lot of people live in other places. People have moved and companies are not going to like fire everyone that moved away from their headquarters. That's just not feasible. So there's going to be lots of movement. But at the same time, it's not like everything goes completely remote. And you know, a sense of location of where something is based is is still important, I think. You can go completely remote. I think changing, you know, when companies get big, shifting course completely remote is really hard. Like moving big ships from, from remote is, is really hard. So I think, you know, when problems get real, people have to get together. I really believe that that's the case. When things are going well, you can kind of stay remote and, and keep going, but you need the flexibility to be able to get together sometimes. So I think location does matter in that aspect, but not like it did before COVID. Yeah, so you think companies, maybe they have like a nucleus of the place where it flies to hang out, but some people are living in other remote parts and uh, kind of has this kind of hybrid feel to it. Yeah, I think there's I think there's always a headquarters for everything, but there's lots of offices in lots of places and there's lots of people moving from office to office. Um, some people stay in one office for long periods of time and there's some hoteling. Some people move a lot from office to office, but it's how people work. And 
we'll see how this how this winds up, but uh, I don't think it's all remote, and I don't think it's back to offices the way we were we were before either. In your investing, are you kind of more of like a thesis style investor? Like you have this idea on how the world's going to be, and you find the startups, or more just hey, if a cool startup comes your way and it sounds promising, or you like the entrepreneur, you back them. I just look for business ideas. I look for network effects. I like marketplace businesses. I like SaaS, B2B, and I look for good entrepreneurs, but I don't care about the idea. Obviously, I care about the idea. I mean, because I want it to be a good idea. As long as it's a good idea, there isn't an industry I want to invest in or incubate in, if that makes sense, as long as it's legal. <laughs> and what's legal is changing very fast uh, with a, a lot of new laws uh, coming out. It's true. Yeah. How are you going about finding your investment targets? Is it aside from cycling? Is it uh, you know letting people pitch you? Is there if people are listening and they have an idea, should they pitch you, or is it more kind of you find them or you you just work through referrals? We have a list of our own ideas, which we're looking for operators for. We have more ideas than operators, and also I'll so entertain. you're kind of doing now what you were trying to do before Shutterstock that uh, kind of that's that portfolio model. It's the same idea, except I start as executive chairman, not as CEO, and try to do more than just 10 companies. Wow. So pushing it even further than you were before. Exactly. It's so interesting how that happens. Like I remember I had uh, Ev Williams on, on this podcast back when he was doing Odeo, and I remember he was trying to do the same thing with becoming a studio model with Obvious Corp, and then Twitter just took it over and they couldn't. Yeah, they they kind of lost focus on, on on all the rest, or didn't lose focus, but shut it all down for Twitter. It's like so many people have tried this studio model, and it seems really hard to get it to work versus just like one monster success and every and the air taken out from everything else. Like, what have you learned about you know why it hasn't worked for so many, or where the success just overshadowed it? Like in your case, or the obvious corporation example with Ev, like. What do you think holds some of them back and what what are the lessons you're trying to apply now? There's a few things and and a lot of these studio models, it's true, they wind up not working because there's one big company that takes up all the attention. I think the way that we're gonna solve this is I've just I've decided not to be CEO. So I, I'm not going to be CEO of one of these companies again. You promise, even um, if it's grown really fast? I mean, I hope I don't eat these words, but I, I I will find the CEO if it's growing really fast. I think I've I've built that skill set to be able to do that. I do think that that's one issue. So one big company kind of swallows all the rest of them. That's one thing that happens. Another is that people get too distributed. They have you know lots of things that then they can't pay attention to, so the entire thing falls. I think another is that I don't think the incentives work for a studio model if you're raising money from the outside. You need all investors aligned on kind of this amorphous kind of model where you know you're going to pivot a lot and things may, may may not make sense and it's really scattered and disorganized and so that's why we've decided to only use our own money uh for this and not raise from the outside which some studio models do i think the incentives are just misaligned there i think that's harder there have been some that have worked but i think over time that gets harder and harder how do you adjust to working with other ceos i mean i you know i think and how it was for you. I remember when I was trying out a bunch of different business ideas, I had a very hard time explaining my logic to other people on my crazy ideas and, and why I wanted to try them. Like, how do you let the CEOs you work with run, you know, giving them enough rope that it doesn't feel like you're being overbearing, but also, you know, making sure they don't just waste your money on uh, dumb ideas? 
Yeah. I mean, I think we're careful with who, who we're hiring. We know a lot of them are going to fail. But if they're strong entrepreneurs that fail an idea, that's actually okay. I failed millions of times on my ideas. And I've failed even in Shutterstock several times. I mean, you need to fail in order to learn. The best part of failing is that you understand a little bit more about what to do next. So if we have an entrepreneur that, that fails, but they, they made a, a really good uh, run at it, and we see something promising, I want to pivot them onto a new idea. Um, because it may be the idea, it may not be the entrepreneur. Maybe the timing, it may not be the entrepreneur. So those are the three pieces that, that are going to make this work. It's the idea, it's the entrepreneur, it's the timing. And so mistakes are okay. I think you learn a lot through the process. There's a lot of pivots that need to be made. And early on, you can spend very small amounts of money to understand whether an idea is, is going to get some traction or not. So all in all, it's making lots of bets in a strategic way, in a controlled way makes sense if you have the right entrepreneurs. And obviously, that's a challenge. This stuff's very hard. It's not easy. We don't think it's going to be easy, but it's really fun and rewarding if you get it right. What's your ambition with it? You already you, you have enough Shutterstock stock that you can uh, just sell a couple uh, chunks of it and live a very good life without having a uh, another hit. What keeps you going? And yeah, I mean, I just think it's fun. I think it's fun creating companies. I like I like building businesses. I like I like seeing uh, people go from employee to entrepreneur, which we've successfully done now a couple of times. And it's great. I mean. There's enough time to do other stuff as well. But you're still going to find the uh, button shadow issues and uh, catch whatever. Uh... Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on some of these new companies, I've when they're completely in beginner startup mode, like initial startup mode, you're less worried about the, the finer details. But later on, of course, <laughs> I'll be looking at the shadows on the buttons. <laughs> nice. Well, that's an ominous warning to end on. But uh yeah, just to close it out, any any words of encouragement for entrepreneurs listening out there? Just things you think people should be thinking about as we head into this really interesting kind of post-pandemic or new normal time? I think if you're an entrepreneur and you want to give an idea a shot, whether you have one or you think you can be an entrepreneur for one of our ideas, our website is Pareto20.com. It's the 20% of the 80-20 Pareto rule. And uh, it would be great to hear from you if that's true, if you guys are out there. Great. We'll link in the show notes. John, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Greg. It's great to, great to talk to you. That's all for my interview with John. This was a lot of fun for me. It really stood out for me how resilient John was in the face of having his first business disrupted by Microsoft. And uh, kind of reminded me of my own story, having to pivot around with lots of different business ideas and then kind of being surprised by which one works and having to double down on it. Definitely fun to hear from someone who's taken a business so far, gone from having a successful private business to actually going through the IPO process and then running a public company quarters upon quarters. And very cool to see how much energy John has now to put back into the startup scene. If you like this show or have any feedback, find me on Twitter. I'm simply at Gregory on both Twitter and Instagram. Also, please give this show a good review. Just head over to iTunes or wherever you get this podcast and leave a review. It really helps more people find out about this show. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, I'm Greg Gallant. Thanks for tuning in.